From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When it comes to your health, you may crave as much information as possible, but limited COVID-19 testing made that impossible for a 24-year-old patient in Castle Rock. She'll share her experience. Then a picture from ICUs around the state from our COVID-19 reporters. And later, a Denver woman connected with her family on video chat. And once they were done catching up... Can I ask you to hang out just a little bit? Because this brought up a whole bunch of things I wanted to talk to you guys about. She started a conversation about end-of-life wishes with coronavirus on her mind. And while most people will be fine, it's a good time to have the discussion. Plus, catharsis by writing a quarantine. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. One of the great frustrations during this pandemic is wondering if you have COVID-19, but not being able to find out. It's what a young woman in Castle Rock has experienced. She had many of the symptoms. Her doctor suspected coronavirus, but she wasn't sick enough to get a test. Nor is she a healthcare worker. The priority, understandably, has been to test them. So Jenna is on the phone. She's 24 years old. We agreed to use her first name only to protect her privacy. Jenna, thanks for being with us. No problem. You started getting symptoms March 23rd, I understand. Uh, First off, how are you feeling today? Um, I'm doing a lot better. Thank you. Okay. How bad did it get? It wasn't the sickest I've ever been. I will say the frustration really was how long it lasted. I was sick upwards of like two and a half weeks Mm. with symptoms. I had a cough. I had this awful chest pain and rib pain and a sore throat. I just had all sorts of symptoms and a lot of fatigue. So I slept all the time. How about a fever? I did have a low-grade fever. It was like in the 99s, low 100s, but it wasn't as high as I've heard other people have had. Yeah. At what point did you decide to contact your healthcare provider? Um, after a few days of having symptoms, I was, I was getting a little worried. Well, I was getting a lot worried, and I was worried about my family catching it. Um, so I talked to my general health practitioner, over the phone, and he said, it sounded like I had it, but they couldn't test me just based off of Colorado health guidelines or something like that. And then a few days later, I had awful chest pain to the point where I was in tears. It was awful. And they wanted me to go to the ER to make sure I wasn't developing pneumonia or anything like that. And again, I I couldn't get tested. So So you went to the ER. Um, Did they rule out pneumonia? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, that's good news. I'm pleased to hear that. Yeah. You mentioned uh, just in passing there that one reason you were concerned was not just for your own sanity, but for the health of those in your household. Just say a few more words about that. Yeah. So um, I live with, I have my three brothers home with me and both my parents are here. My mom works in healthcare and she has issues with asthma and so does one of my brother's. And I was just really concerned because by the point I started showing symptoms, I knew I I had um, already been around the house and was touching everything and we're all living in such close quarters. And I may not have gotten as sick, but I was really scared that one of my family members would be one of the few who had to go on a ventilator or something. And um, when I actually went into the ER, 
I was told that they were already getting near capacity. And so I, I was just terrified, honestly. Mm. Are, are your family members okay right now? Yeah, yeah, they're they're fine. They did have symptoms, but I'm really grateful that it wasn't as bad as it could have been. So doctors did give you a note with your diagnosis, which they called a suspected yes. COVID-19 infection. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, hearing that there was no way you're going to know for sure if you have COVID-19 and, and might pass it on to your vulnerable family members. Like, how did that make you feel, the, the, the not knowing? I, I was frustrated, and I'm still a little frustrated um, just because, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. But on the off chance it wasn't, what if we get it again and it's even worse? You know, um, just all the different narratives from the federal government and state government of saying, if, if you need to get tested, you can get tested, but then that not actually happening. We know that there are limited tests. And I, I just want to play part of what I heard last week from Governor Jared Polis. A lot of people, you probably hear from them too, say, I might have COVID-19. I have a bad cough and flu. What do I do? You should not run out and get testing. There's probably 20, 30,000 people with COVID-19 in our state and another 30, 40,000 with COVID-19 symptoms that are negative, that have something else. The last thing we want is 50, 60,000 people scrambling around hospitals and doctor's offices getting tested for no reason. And I say for no reason because there's no treatment. Nine out of 10 people stay at home and get better. So that's the official line there. The governor has said that targeted testing will be key to reopening the state. I just want to note before we go, Jenna, that you shared your experience and your suspected diagnosis on Facebook because you wanted Mm -hmm. to send a message, especially, I think, to young people. Why? Just briefly. Just because I was seeing on the news and even among people that I knew of people my age just not taking it seriously, not social distancing. And I know, I mean, I've heard so many stories from around the country and around the world of young people who are carriers, they're asymptomatic, and they can give it to somebody really vulnerable. And then they themselves can also get really, really sick and potentially have life-threatening consequences. And I just wanted people to understand that that anyone is vulnerable, and it's not just older people and people who are sick. Jenna there, she's 24 years old, lives in Castle Rock. She was clinically diagnosed with COVID-19, but was unable to be tested to know for sure. It's a situation other Coloradans have found themselves in. Let's get the broader picture in the state now, first with CPR's Andrea Dukakis and in just a bit, health reporter John Daly. They've been digging into how prepared the state is what it's like in hospitals right now, and what life may look like once the virus subsides. Andrea, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. And John will join us a bit later. As I've said, you've been checking up on ERs, and, you know, people might picture them packed with coughing, feverish patients. That is not necessarily the case, though, right? No, not at all. ER visits are way down across the state, as much as 30 or 40 percent. I went to visit Swedish Medical Center's ER in Englewood the other day, and the waiting room, which is usually pretty packed with patients, was completely empty. Erin Kunkel is one of the nurses there, and she says Swedish is a stroke center, and they typically treat a lot of stroke victims. We see strokes all day long every day, and even our stroke volume is down which I did not anticipate or expect. So I am a little worried, have patients 
than having strokes and not utilizing the ER out of fear. Hmm. And it's not just stroke victims who aren't showing up at the ER. People who normally would come into an emergency room for complications of diabetes, abdominal pain, and other ailments are staying home. One doctor told me he had a patient with a kidney stone, which is a hugely painful condition, and she told him that she sat in her car in the ER parking lot for two hours until she finally decided she had to go inside to get treated. One doctor who was on the show a few weeks ago referred to this as slovid, this phenomenon. But of course, Andrea, we know that ERs and uh, in contrast, ICUs are seeing patients with the novel coronavirus. Yeah, they definitely are. And these are the patients who are coming to the ER these days. Doctors and nurses tell me they've been seeing some very, very sick people. And those very sick people are often admitted and taken to the ICU, the intensive care units. And the hospitals I spoke with say their ICUs are busy, but they're not packed or overwhelmed at this point. Hospital ERs are also seeing people with milder respiratory symptoms who are presumed to have COVID-19. Those folks, for the most part, aren't getting tested and are sent home and told to isolate. Sort of like Jenna from Castle Rock, whom we heard from. Andrea, there's another reason you found for the low volume at ERs in Colorado right now. That's right. When people stay home, like many of us are doing now, they don't get into car accidents as much. They don't get into bar fights. There isn't a lot of crime and they don't get injured skiing. So that's another reason volumes down. How are emergency departments ensuring they don't become hotspots for the virus? The hospitals, as you can imagine, are really cautious. I had to use hand sanitizer when I walked in, had my temperature taken, and I had to wear a mask there. They send respiratory patients to one side of the ER and non-respiratory patients to the other side to keep them far apart. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, they're using telemedicine within the ER for patients with COVID symptoms. I always thought about telemedicine being used more remotely, where a patient might be at home and a doctor is in his or her office. But Erin Kunkel, the Swedish nurse, says they use it in the ER a lot now. That means multiple nurses and doctors don't have to go in and out of the patients' rooms all the time. We have iPads in the department that we can deploy to patients and then be able to communicate with them. Their cell phone number, if they have it, or the bedside phone in the room. So we've got a couple of different options to make sure that we're able to communicate with our patients and they feel safe and well cared for. And our staff are safe also. Oh, that's fascinating. Telemedicine, even within the same facility. Andrea, stay on the line. Let's bring in CPR health reporter John Daly. John, you've been doing some reporting on the financial impact of the pandemic. And it is not just bars and restaurants and retail stores that are hurting. A lot of primary care clinics are hurting, too. Yeah, that's exactly right, Ryan. You know, for weeks I was talking to emergency room docs who were saying they were pretty busy, but when I talked to primary care physicians, arguably the backbone of Colorado's health system, some of them weren't seeing many patients at all. They've seen a sharp downturn in visits. I spoke with a pediatrician with Pediatrics West, which has a pair of clinics in Wheat Ridge and Littleton, and he recently filed an application with the federal government for emergency financial assistance to uh-huh. keep his practice going. He made that decision after a close examination of his balance sheets and projecting a massive budget shortfall in just a few months you know, coming up here, and he figured his practice could be hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, um, it, you know, by the summer, potentially. And so like other small businesses, John, they're applying for federal help. Yeah. 
That's right. This practice has requested $650,000 from the federal government as part of its relief funding called the Payroll Protection Program. The Coronavirus Relief Fund established these new loans for qualifying organizations that have fewer than 500 employees, and that money aims to help employers like Pediatrics West pay workers and cover other employment-related expenses during this health crisis. But the doctor that I spoke to worries about whether or not that money will arrive, or at least in time. And whether they'll make payroll paying, paying the staff. Yeah, that's right. They have about 50-plus staffers. That doctor said they're committed to not laying anybody off, but he said they're going to have to cut salaries of the providers and the administrative staff uh, at least 50% and cut hours for the hourly staff. That would be people like medical assistants and nurses and other staffers. And folks at other practices are worried they'll have a hard time staying open if this goes on for months or months and certainly more than a year. That would be very problematic. This is another dimension, I suppose, of slovid. Why is this happening? Why is business dropped off? Yeah, I'm told it's dropped off like going off a cliff. You know, families and patients are staying home due to the state restrictions. And then other folks worry about getting sick by visiting a medical clinic. And I've heard that patient volumes are down, you know, 50% or more at many practices. And that means revenues are down that much as well. This is also true, as I understand, of community health centers, some surgical centers. Uh, John, a, a quick question about supplies. Do hospitals that you've been in touch with say they're amply stocked? Uh, lots of conversation around masks, gowns, PPE, personal protective equipment. Yeah, what I'm hearing with PPE is that it's still in short supply. The most clear indication is that the state has enacted this uh, crisis standards of care for PPE. These are emergency medical protocols to deal with the pandemic. And these guidelines were approved by the governor. uh, And they were approved because they worry about COVID overwhelming hospitals. And the PPE is just a a critical part of that. I had a the state's chief medical officer, uh, Eric France, he's the one who activated these protocols. And he said that, uh, you know, he never envisioned that he would be doing this. He's been in practice as a pediatrician for more than 30 years. And these crisis guidelines are uh, to give providers advice for things like reusing PPE without fear of legal liability. Uh, And there have to be special sort of provisions made for that. Exactly. Andrea, um, they need to think about having enough PPE, not just for today, but for tomorrow and next week and next month. I mean, the horizon is potentially long here. Right. I talked with Ricky Dollywall, who's an ER doctor at St. Joseph's and other hospitals in the Denver area. And he wants to make sure what's happening now with lack of protective equipment does not happen next time. There could be a second wave because no one has immunity yet unless you've had the illness. And so, you know, until we have a vaccine, that's a that's a high risk thing. And we're not even sure what kind of immunity you have once you have the disease. Um, so, Andrea, these hospitals did a lot of planning, tense I know we're set up outside some ERs. You reported on that a few weeks ago. The plan is for the Colorado Convention Center in Denver to be turned into a place for recovering COVID patients. Was all that for naught? 
I've been talking to the head ER doctor at Swedish, Dylan Lloyden, and he says no. He says social distancing and hospital planning have allowed Colorado to avoid worst-case scenarios so far. And he says you never know before something like this happens. If you plan and hospitals aren't overrun, people say you overdid it. Mm. If hospitals are overrun, then you didn't do enough. And Dr. Lloyden says he thinks we passed the peak a week or so ago, though the state says it's still ahead of us in May. And even some doctors will tell you they're ready to see a state plan to start opening up the economy carefully and slowly so people can go back to work. Of course, one prerequisite of this is to be able to test more people, and that would give officials a much better sense of who should be isolated and who might not need to be. More on testing there. Uh, Andrea, there's the concern about healthcare workers and PPE. Another concern is that once the virus is contained, there indeed may be a second wave. What are you hearing? I've also been hearing concerns about medication shortages, which hospitals always worry about. In the COVID world, the concerns are about meds that are used when you intubate people, which you do for many of the very sick COVID-19 patients. These drugs are sedatives and paralytics. Ricky Dollywall, the ER physician, says a shortage of these drugs is already an issue for him. People are using alternative drugs, our bread and butter go-to drugs and respiratory issues, things like a medicine like ketamine that we use for sedation may not be the one that you go to because there's a shortage. So you don't want it to get to a point where all of your different options are gone. I also spoke with Julie Longboard at the Colorado Hospital Association about this, too. And she says a lot of it is that the pipeline has been disrupted and so many of our drugs are now made in other countries. Andrea, your interview with Dr. Dollywall was by phone earlier this week, and he was in the ER at St. Joe's. And uh, you had to stop for some music in the background. I don't know if you heard that music. That means that someone just got extubated with <laughs> has coronavirus. Every time we have a tube taken out of a patient here, they they play "Don't Stop Believing" over the over the overhead. A musical celebration <laughs> of recovery. Right. CPR's Andrea Dukakis there, John Daly as well, who are on the COVID nineteen beat. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. As we all navigate significant disruptions to our normal routines. Colorado Public Radio is deeply grateful for the central force of donors who continue to sustain the news and music we all rely on, CPR's Evergreen members. Your crucial monthly donations are the reliable support CPR can count on during these uncertain times. Evergreen gifts come in all sizes, and their collective impact is felt every day. Thank you for being a Colorado Public Radio Evergreen member. Colorado's home to many aspiring Olympians. And CPR's Dan Boyce reports that the decision to put off the Tokyo Games for a year has thrown their lives into turmoil. It was on English hockey rinks where Phil Andrews first fell in love with sports. So why did I call him about the Summer Olympics? I'm sure that's what you're expecting, a British ice hockey player who runs USA weightlifting. All right, he never went pro with hockey. He did move into the administrative side of things. He's the CEO of USA Weightlifting, one of 24 national Olympic governing bodies based in Colorado Springs. His athletes are now in a very peculiar type of limbo. They didn't even finish qualifying for the games yet. The athletes need some certainty. You can't provide that. So the next best thing you can do is be honest about where we are in the process, what's going on. This is the first time the Olympics have ever been postponed. 
The last time they were canceled was during World War II, so there's not a whole lot of precedent for how this is all going to shake out. Even experienced Olympians are struggling to adjust. In her first Paralympics, earns her first medal. Salida resident Sophia Herzog won a silver medal in the 100-meter breaststroke during the 2016 Paralympics. She has a form of dwarfism. She's four feet tall. Sophia, is it as good as you thought it would be? It's so much better. I can't believe I did it. Four years later, she had been feeling so strong, feeling so much momentum, then everything halted. The Salida Aquatic Center, every public pool is closed under the state's coronavirus order. She has nowhere to train. In swimming, we lose our fitness about a week after we stop swimming. So I've I've lost everything at this point. Part of the difficulty is the timing. In late March, many athletes were just entering their most aggressive phases of training to get to peak physical fitness right at the Summer Games. Then on March 24th, the International Olympic Committee announced the Games would be postponed. Once the official news came out, I just sat on my couch for legit a whole day and ate like some cake and watched TV. Um, I just needed a day just to like sulk in it. The time I'm spending with athletes has gone up, I would say, significantly. Karen Kogan is a sports psychologist with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. She says athletes often feel a sense of post-Olympic letdown after the Games are done. Now we've got this letdown, but we didn't even have the Olympic Games, you know, so it's so much turmoil inside. In the three weeks after the Games were postponed, Kogan had nearly 70 sessions with individual athletes and nine team meetings. For each athlete, it's different. So what I'm looking at with each of them is where are you in your life right now? You know, do you want to continue for another year? Um, some have decided that they can't or they don't think they will have a good chance in a year. And, and there's a lot of sadness around that. And, and there's a loss that goes along with letting go of a dream. However, for all the sad stories, there are hopeful ones, too, like Kara Winger. I am a three-time Olympic javelin thrower living and training in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Winger was almost certainly going to make the 2020 Games, but she's not too upset about the delay. In the past few years, she's started new throwing techniques she'd like more time to master. And the schedule of major track and field events this year felt rushed to her, Plus, Winger's 34. She'd planned on retiring after the Olympics and the subsequent world championships, and she's actually glad she gets to put that off one more year. I don't think that a global pandemic is very positive at all, but uh, for me personally, it's like a, a like chance to take a breath and kind of organize my thoughts and my plans and all that stuff better than I thought that I was doing when life was moving on as normal. And she is still able to train, just now in a local park. Do you find yourself needing to walk around the park and, and warn people beforehand that there's going to be like a flying spear? No. People see javelins and they, A, don't know what they are, and B, are going to avoid them. They run. The they run away. I get it. Yeah. While veteran athletes like Winger have to push on longer because of the delay, for some up-and-comers, this could give their Olympic ambitions just enough time to come true. And some are finding ways to keep that fiery spirit of competition burning. Again, Phil Andrews, the British CEO of USA Weightlifting. Uh, we're very lucky that some of our um, sport can be done from your garage. You can put a, a weight set in your garage. We've actually got online competitions going on garage to garage right now. It's not Tokyo, but it'll have to do for now. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News.
Most people who contract COVID-19 will be just fine, but the disease has certainly made us consider our own mortality. So why not use this as an opportunity to communicate with friends and family what you want at the end of life? It's what 67-year-old Christine Landry of Denver did recently via video chat. She was adamant that she wouldn't want to be put on a ventilator. When you're talking about something very specific and you're getting down to the nitty-gritty, it does make you stop and think. It makes it very real. It makes it very real. And um, that made me stop and think about you guys because you guys are the ones I love. And two things was I wanted to make sure that you guys understood that this was something I had thought through and made the choice while I'm not incapacitated. I understand your decision personally. While it makes me very upset to even like ponder that reality, because, you know, of course, I love you very much. Um, I understand why. Landry was chatting with her goddaughter there and her goddaughter's husband. So how best to broach these conversations? And what precisely should you be thinking about? From Denver Hospice, clinical social worker Melissa Davis is on the line. Hi, Melissa. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for being with us. Also on the line, Dr. Hilary Lum, an associate professor of geriatric medicine at CU. Hi, Dr. Lum. Uh, Great to be here. Hello. Let's start by addressing a voice in my head and maybe a voice in some listeners' heads, you know, saying, oh boy, here goes the doom and gloom news media again. Most people will be fine and here is CPR focusing on death. Um, Melissa, do you, do you think this is a good time to address end-of-life wishes? I do. I think that it's a good reminder that at the end of the day, none of us knows what's going to happen. And if it's not COVID, you know, things happen all the time, um, catastrophic accidents, catastrophic illnesses, and it's not doom and gloom to take control of your own health care wishes. It's actually very empowering and one of the best ways to make sure that whatever your wishes are, they're communicated with your loved ones and your health care Dr. Lam, what have you seen happen when there is no, like, advanced directive, when there's no clarity at the end of life? The lack of clarity can really make it stressful, sometimes chaotic. In the best case scenario, we are able to uh, find individuals who know what the person's wishes are. But then on the other end of the spectrum, if someone hasn't shared what's important to them, um, we may... uh, deliver care that's not actually aligned with what that person would have wanted if they had had a chance to share it. Mm. That puts you in a tough position, doesn't it? It's, it can be distressing to everyone involved. It occurs to me that there is so much going on right now to support healthcare workers. This is actually another dimension of that, because if, if you are clear about what you want, you are also helping your, the healthcare worker, not just yourself and your family. Do you think that's true? It is extremely helpful. We are able to then align with what the person wants. And really, even though the illness is serious, we can know that we are providing care that that person wants and we can come alongside and support their family of choice. It's very helpful. Isn't it extremely tricky now? Because with COVID-19, it's so often the case that family can't be near the patient. Um, 
that just must introduce a whole host of issues. We recognize that with many no-visitor policies, it is another barrier. We're certainly doing the best we can to provide opportunities to use technology, to have supportive, helpful conversations. But again, that's, uh, you know, trying to navigate a difficult situation that none of us want to be in. Uh, Instead, we are helped when individuals know what's important to them and have had those conversations before the medical emergency, before they physically can't be together if the choice is to be hospitalized. Uh, Melissa, this is a kind of a dark question, but if I show up at the hospital thinking that my life is in jeopardy, should I bring my paperwork with me? Is that is that something I should do? Absolutely. That's, oh. that's a wonderful idea. Um, that the conversation that you have with your loved ones is obviously incredibly important and should be an ongoing conversation. But then having those wishes written down is a great way to communicate them, especially if um, you're in a position where you're not able to speak for for whatever reason or articulate your wishes. That's a great way. And I'd, I'd add on that it's a gift to healthcare providers, but also to your loved ones, so that your loved ones don't have to wonder what they should do in that moment. You've already communicated it in a moment that isn't a crisis, and that can be a great gift to give to your loved ones as well. Okay, let's dip back into that video chat from Christine Landry and her family. Um, You'll hear her throw around a few names, but I I think her fundamental wish is clear here. I have had a, a durable medical power of attorney for years, and um, my friend Nicole, who's an attorney, and <clears throat> I did that because she was a friend who said, yeah, I don't have a problem pulling the plug. And that was important to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's a hard thing to do. That's a hard thing to do. Right. Dr. Lum, pulling the plug sounds so cut and dried. Is the conversation and should my wishes, uh, be they spoken or on paper, should they be more nuanced than that? <laughs> um. You know, I think that individuals should have as much of a conversation as they feel comfortable with. And, you know, if if you're on the receiving end where someone says, pull the plug, asking, you know, tell me more about what you mean by that. Uh-huh. And also, importantly, tell me about, you know, what your your goals from a particular treatment would be, because that's then how a decision maker can help decide for a particular treatment. Does it make sense to Uh, have support from a ventilator? Does it make sense to have whatever procedure might be offered? I'm not enough of a medical expert, though, to even necessarily ask the right questions. Melissa, I know that there are some resources out there like Five Wishes, which kind of has you run through questions. Uh, Who do I want to make care decisions for me? The kind of medical treatment I want, how comfortable I want to be and how I want to be treated. Where do you suggest starting? And and is this an advanced directive? Am I using the right term there, Melissa? You absolutely are. When we talk about advanced directives, we're talking about anything that you dictate to say who you want involved with your care, what kind of care you want, and importantly, what kind of care you don't want. A great place to start is um, the Conversation Project has some really good resources. And like you say, Five Wishes, that really walks you through in plain English what's important to you. I think that talking to your healthcare providers, again, about 
what will my quality of life look like with this particular intervention or treatment? You don't have to know every, you know, medical term out there to just know to ask what what will my life look like? And then you can make an informed decision that's right for you and your family. This is interesting. The Conversation Project. Have you had the conversation? It asks online. It's got starter kits for this. I mentioned five wishes. Do I need to get an attorney involved, Melissa? No, not necessarily. You're absolutely welcome to, but many of these forms can be filled out um, in the state of Colorado without legal involvement. Um, Some, like a living will, require witnesses. A notary is optional as well. But, for example, a medical durable power of attorney, you don't need either. Um, it's, it's always a good idea to communicate with the person who you nominate to make healthcare decisions to make sure that they're on board and comfortable with that role. Dr. Lum, when you talk with patients, what is it most often that they want to avoid at the end of life? Like, what are, their, know, what are their goals? Yeah, I think many people for their goals, want to be with family, they want to be comfortable, they want to be without pain, Um, and that can happen in a lot of different settings. And so often I really appreciate when my patients are willing to discuss some of the details of that. The more information they can give me about what would be okay and what is a line they don't want to cross, then we can start collaboratively working on a care plan to identify, would that be in the hospital or would that be at home? Would that be with hospice? That's when those decisions are within your power, though, right? I mean, there are health conditions that can dictate that for you. Certainly. And what I love is having these conversations in the presence of the people they elect to be their medical durable power of attorney, their health care agent, so that even if that person isn't involved at that point in the decision making, they're hearing the discussion so that then they can uh, speak on that person's behalf in mm. the future. Melissa, should that person be related to me or, or is it a friend? Does it matter? I think what matters the most is the relationship you have with that person. So sometimes it will be a relative, but sometimes it won't. I think that it's important to think about who is going to be a strong advocate for what I want, who knows what I want and would be able to communicate that well to my healthcare professionals rather than necessarily the person who's closest to us. And I think it's important to remember in Colorado, there's no default. It's not it, the, the responsibility of these decisions doesn't automatically fall to your spouse, for example. Oh. And so that's why it's really good to have this in writing, because many people think, I don't need an advanced directive. My spouse or partner will automatically get this decision-making power. And that's not true in Colorado. Oh, that's great insight. Now, you talked about it not necessarily being the person you are closest to. You're speaking relationally there. Yes. What about, yes. What about geography, though? And so I've given this some thought because of COVID-19, and my natural inclination was to make my mom my advocate. But she's not anywhere near us. She's in California. Is is geographic proximity important, do you think? It, it can be. I think that the most important thing is that if you are able to communicate with her and if the time were to come where she need to be involved, can she be 
present, and I, I mean present in some, you know, using technology or the telephone or something to be able to be involved if the time comes where she needs to be. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot, Dr. Lum, to wrap up. Do you have your end-of-life plan laid out? You know, I do. In fact, just this week, I've met with my own uh, attorney. Again, I agree, we don't need an attorney for the medical aspects, but I was also taking this opportunity to do uh, the other uh, financial planning uh, that is appropriate to have in place. Right. We haven't really talked about a will here, but that's a conversation that is not unconnected to this, wouldn't you say, doctor? Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful to you both. It's a difficult conversation to broach, but an important one. Thanks for doing it with us. Thanks for having us. You You heard Dr. Hilary Lum there, Associate Professor of Geriatric Medicine at CU Anschutz, and Melissa Davis. She's a clinical social worker at Denver Hospice. We discussed end-of-life wishes. Once again, they suggested the Conversation Project, and we heard about five wishes. Back in a moment, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Uncertainty is all around right now, but you can be certain that CPR News has what you need in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic or anytime. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook. Keep up with the latest on the public health situation, the unemployment crisis, and stories that have nothing to do with the pandemic that will help us all remember the wider world out there. Tune in for news and analysis on the radio and sign up for the Lookout newsletter at CPR.org. Thank you for tuning in to CPR News. We're going to spend the rest of the show focused on the hobbies and crafts people are taking up while they stay at home, the skills they're acquiring. And we'll begin with CPR's own Avery Lill. In addition to adopting a dog, which she told us about some weeks ago, she's made more recently a quarantine to cope with some of the anxiety that she's feeling. Hi, Avery. Hi, Ryan. What is a quarantine? Well, first, a zine is a self-published small circulation magazine. So a quarantine is anything about life during this pandemic, especially life in quarantine or social distancing. The one that I made, it's just a single piece of paper folded into a little booklet with eight pages. I participated in a workshop over Zoom with artist and NPR health blogger Malika Garib. She taught it for Believer Mag. You can just look up the quarantine hashtag on social media and you'll find so many examples of people all over the world making zines to document their quarantine experience, which is what we're doing now. It's kind of like collective memory of what happened and what art we created during this time. So, um, you know, if you post it, share it, others might see it, do it for yourself. I was totally charmed by what you came up with, Avery. So tell us about your zine. So this pandemic, it's brought on big feelings that are hard to process, and they're hard for me to explain. It's been especially hard for me to describe what it's like to live alone to my friends and my family, most of whom live with someone else. So I drew my anxiety as a character. He's kind of like a dinosaur with no arms, and I called it Mel. (laughs) And Mel stomps around and says all the things that I'm anxious about, like quarantine will last forever, or I'm just a cyborg now because my entire social life is online or on my phone. One page that really stood out to me, um, you had drawn yourself learning to knit a scarf. And the longer the scarf got, the more you dedicated to it, the smaller Mel got. 
So this is my first zine, but not my first crisis craft. (laughs) I taught myself to knit a couple of weeks ago. I also tried some punch needle embroidery. It's just felt really good to have something creative and repetitive to do with my hands. And so as you knit a scarf, Mel, your kind of anthropomorphized anxiety gets smaller. Did, Did drawing the quarantine help you feel better? Yeah, it actually did. It really helped me articulate some of the things that I've been anxious about and even visualize things getting better. So just that process in itself, it was cathartic. It also, uh, it was really encouraging to share it and hear from friends and folks on the internet who are feeling something similar. Do you think there are any other crafts you'll take up? Oh, uh, you know, I really want to get better at punch needle embroidery. It's kind of like hook and loop rug making. That's my next project. Avery, thanks so much. Thanks, Ryan. It's my colleague Avery Lill on how crisis crafting has buoyed her spirits. And she tweeted this zine. Uh, She's at Avery Lill, at Avery Lill on Twitter. Meanwhile, baking is another way to cope, as CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg has found. Around the same time governors began ordering people to shelter in place, the videos began popping up on YouTube. Today we're creating the simplest quarantine birthday cake. Pandemic-themed baking, like that video from a channel called Quali Pops, or this incredibly earnest one from a guy named Ivan Sagel. Now that we're spending more time at home and being good citizens, I want to share with you how I make sourdough bread. All these videos tap into the same need. Misty from the Pandemic Keto Comfort Food channel puts it this way. It's okay to have a treat now and then when you are filling all the emotions. She then demonstrates how to make a giant keto cookie. Grand Junction resident Julie Baker has watched quite a few baking how-tos recently and especially appreciates their step-by-step instructions. So that it's not so daunting. As the mom of four children, Baker hasn't really had time to bake. Until now. Now that she's got a house full of restless kids, and on the day that we talked, a jug of old, old milk that she has just the recipe for. Man, well, that sour milk is like about to explode in my fridge. So I'm going to do that today because I keep saying, I'm going to do it tomorrow. It has to happen. It's happening today. We are making biscuits. And by we, she means all the kids, ages three through nine. She hopes when they look back at this weird time, they don't remember being afraid. She wants them to remember being together and learning how measuring cups work. Love and happiness and math. (laughs) Even though they're all stuck at home, everyone I talk to has found a way to share their baking with others. Rose Petralia, who also lives in Grand Junction, is documenting her journey toward the perfect loaf of sourdough on her blog, Junktown Cooking. She tells me it's going well in this educational exchange. I've kept my my mother alive. (laughs) Has she Um, been been, like eating your bread? (laughs) Uh, The mother is the starter culture for the bread. I promise I am a baker too. Just clearly not of sourdough. This pandemic also inspired Diana Rose Yellow of Fruta to do something she says she never would have otherwise, walk people through making a Navajo staple via Facebook Live. I'll show you the fry bread that's frying. Fry bread. 
golden and glistening. It's like a newborn baby, and it's so beautiful. The video has more than 2,000 views so far, and a lot of comments, mainly from people who are not Navajo and are grateful to learn. Yellow has a public health degree and is a bit chagrined that fry bread has 700 calories per serving. But since we're in a pandemic, it's all okay because <laughs> we, we, we'll have to survive on what we've got, you know. And she feels lucky she bought a big bag of flour before things got so strange. My friend Katie Langford, a reporter at the Boulder Daily Camera, has also been digging into her pantry supplies. She's gone from baking a few times a month to baking daily. If not, like, multiple times a day. And she's discovered one of the hazards of pandemic baking. When you make too much, you can't just take it to work. She and her roommate are still eating their way through a tasty but way too big pie made with pounds of strawberries and rhubarb. It's a lot of pie. (laughs) But that's not going to keep Lankford from the oven. Baking is a comfort, a link to a time before coronavirus. Now, just like in the past, she can mix flour and water and yeast and make bread. I can still combine butter and sugar and flour and chocolate chips, and it's going to become cookies. So I think there's just a certain kind of stability in in knowing that even though everything feels kind of crazy and uncertain right now, those things are still the same and they still taste delicious. And since many baked treats freeze well, too, she can save them and maybe even share them with her co-workers someday. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. We should note that to keep her distance, Stina wasn't in any of those kitchens. That was all by Skype and by phone. And if you'd like to make fry bread, you can watch a tutorial at CPR.org. Museums may be closed, but one's curiosity doesn't have to shut down. It's why the Denver Museum of Nature and Science is holding virtual science parties to encourage experiments at home. Educator and performer Chelsea Ochoa gave us one example involving sound effects, which we gravitated to, I think, probably because we're in radio. And that's actually where Foley Art got started, is with radio. There was a man named Jack Foley. And he started to create sound effects with different types of objects because back then the recording equipment was too big to be able to take outside. The Foley technique has a long and even recent tradition in Hollywood. Take, for example, the 1993 film Jurassic Park. There's this scene where the little baby dinosaurs are coming out of their eggs. Go on then. Go on then. Well, that sound of those dinosaurs coming out of the egg was a combination of breaking ice cream cones to make the cracking of the eggshell. Push, push. And then someone putting a fist inside of a cantaloupe and kind of squishing it around to make that slimy, gross sound. And then the skin of the dinosaur was actually a pineapple that they put green soap on. And so with those three sounds and a lot of very high-tech equipment, they were able to recreate the sound of a dinosaur being born. Ochoa scoured her own home for stuff that she could use as Foley art. Can you hear that? 
That is aluminum foil. Tin foil is really great stuff for making all kinds of sounds.、Um, this is something that I used to make the sound of a fire in the folly story that I did. Okay, Chelsea, what's next? There's a lot of really fun ways to make footsteps, and you can do it in all different kinds of materials and stuff. One thing I brought with me right now is actually a sound for something small, like a maybe a small animal. In my folly story, I used this. For the footsteps of the Chihuahua, <laughs> would you have guessed those are bottle caps taped to her fingers? All right, one more. That sounds creepy. A bit like tearing flesh, maybe branches breaking. In fact, it's broccoli being torn in half. Now, if you'd like to try something like this at home, maybe record it, create a foley story. Here's Ochoa's advice. I would say definitely don't miss the fridge, because there's a lot of really weird, interesting sounds you can make with food. And also, I would say experiment and try different things, because you will notice that when you record things, it doesn't actually sound the way you expected it to all the time. And there are little alterations you can make to change the sound. That is Chelsea Ochoa, educator and performer at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. You can find other home experiments at dmns.org. Dmns.org. So we heard about science projects, baking. A zine, just some of the ways you can use any downtime to stay at home orders given you, and we know that's not the case for everyone. But we are interested in what new skills Coloradans are acquiring right now, what new hobbies you're pursuing. Personally, I discovered these intricate sticker books that help get me out of my head. I'm also thinking about learning to do a handstand. Could be dangerous. How about you? Let us know by emailing Colorado Matters at CPR.org. You can send us a voicemail if you'd like. That's Colorado Matters at CPR.org. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News.